Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Emily, before we start this week, I wanted to just to clarify one thing, because, you know, a, a loyal listener wrote to me and said that you are right with your pronunciation of migraine. I'm wrong <laughs> with my pronunciation of migraine, although she said because she suffers with migraines and saw a migraine specialist pre-COVID, um, that even the migraine clinics, and I'll continue to say migraine because I just can't help it, um, even the migraine clinics use the word migraine because it's more common. Really? I think are, one, is, you are correct. one is supposed to be American, one is supposed to be French. And if you check on the internet, they also have the Welsh pronunciation of it. I just thought, you know, big up to you for getting it right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how was your week? It's not been great. It's quite frustrating psychologically. I literally don't know from one day to the next how it's going to be. It doesn't seem to have any kind of rhythm at the moment. You know, when you talk about this sort of relapse, you think it's going to be a big dip and then you you kind of come out of the other side of it. It's literally one day I feel fine and then the next day I can't get out of bed. One day I have no headache. The next day, I mean, I think it's been four days this week that I've had to take migraine tablets to get out of bed. And I'm shattered, absolutely shattered. How was your week? Uh, I've managed to maintain some of my better health from 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 August, um, but the the jet lag has has taken its toll. Like my lack of sleep, I'm getting a bit more palpitations than I had when I was away, and my allergies have definitely resurfaced um, with the itchy skin and the just generally feeling unwell. So what I've done is I've gone back on the formatidine. Okay, and you're taking that regularly or just when you feel like you need it? Well, I'm I'm what I my plan is to do is to take it for a week. Okay. And to see if that settles things and then come off it again because I wasn't on it for about 6 weeks. Yeah. I would say that what you need really need to address is your sleep and uh so I'm very pleased that we spoke to a sleep expert this week. A sleep expert and a neurologist, so and someone who deals with long COVID, like the, he's the whole package, basically. <laughs> he is. He's Professor Guy Leshtina, who is a consultant neurologist at the London Bridge Hospital at the Shard. He runs sleep disorder clinics, is part of a long COVID clinic, is a charming and fascinating man, and author of the book The Nocturnal Brain: Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. Um, which we recommend and we'll put details up on, on our website for anyone who's interested. What you can say clearly is that sleep disturbance is a massive issue in the post-COVID population and the sleep disturbance that we're talking about are, uh, are things like sleep initiation difficulties, sleep maintenance difficulties, uh, unrefreshing sleep. And, and certainly uh, looking at the papers, that reflects what I'm seeing in my clinics, that a lot of people in that post-COVID situation are having real issues with trying to re-establish sleep that is refreshing and continuous. 
in my mind, there's two different types of sleep disturbance. One in the acute phase, when you're very unwell, you're going through a lot, you're anxious, you're in a hospital, it's really hard to sleep. And the other one is different, I think, because for, for me, I'm unable to sleep, not because I'm not in my home, I'm not, I didn't have a very bad COVID experience, but I have, there's something else going on. Now, what is that physiologically that's happening to keep us awake or to stop us falling asleep? So, so I think the short answer is we don't know. The long answer is that sleep is a very complex beast and it has physiological inputs, it has behavioural inputs, it has psychological inputs and it has environmental inputs. So I think that there are a number of things that strike me seeing individuals who've got sleep disturbance in that post-COVID setting. The first is a lot of individuals seem to have what we would term a state of hyperarousal or hypervigilance. So this is the activated flight, fright or fight response. Uh, so the kind of things that people will experience is that they will have often have palpitations. They'll often have a, a, a latent anxiety, a feeling of being wired, uh, you know, really on, on high alert. And we know that that state of hypervigilance, which we think is related to part, activation of part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, um, is very deleterious to sleep, both in terms of initiating and maintaining sleep. Now, the question that everybody is asking, and I don't think that we have a good answer to, is, is this directly related to some sort of damage to the autonomic nervous system uh, secondary to the virus itself? And I think there is some evidence just in terms of what we see immediately in the aftermath of the infection or sometimes even during the infection, that there seems to be a cohort of individuals who have marked autonomic, marked sympathetic activation or, or, or autonomic dysfunction as part of COVID and, and post-COVID. Is some of it related to uh, the anxiety of having an illness that particularly in the first, you know, the first 12 months of, of the pandemic was thought to be very, very dangerous and potentially fatal, um, which I think, you know, for many of us, it's the first time that we've encountered that sort of situation where we catch an illness that potentially could be fatal. Uh, and, and one can't underestimate the psychological consequences of that and what it does to to your your brain. Um, and, um, and how much of it is related to what we typically see in insomnia, which is that in individuals who are predisposed to insomnia, what often happens is they have some sort of life event during which they sleep very, very poorly. And I think you alluded to that, you know, when you're in hospital or when you're acutely unwell, you've got a fever, you've got aches and pains, uh, you're coughing continuously throughout the night. Um, and then after that, the brain's pattern of sleep has been disrupted. The, the, the brain is a creature of habit, particularly when it comes to sleep. So sleep is a learned habit. And as such, it can be unlearned. And if you are predisposed to insomnia, you know, usually we consider that as being genetic or personality based and something disrupts your sleep, then that can morph very easily into chronic insomnia. And I think all of these are in the mix in many individuals. Sometimes it's probably one thing rather than another, but it, it can be very difficult to unravel. I was speaking to someone the other day who... Uh was saying what I had to understand was what my body had been through in the last 18 months with the post-COVID, post but also with the pandemic and everything that has come within that 
for me physically and psychologically the fact that I don't have the same life that that I previously had she believed that I have to acknowledge that I have essentially been through a trauma Mm -hmm. um do you think that some of our sleep disturbances in post-covid are almost a sort of ptsd or or a, a trauma to our brain that is is now causing us a sleep disturbance yeah undoubtedly undoubtedly there is a psychological trauma associated with this and you know you know this is the first time for many of us that we've had been faced with our own mortality because I think that that's what it is, you know, you, you know, that is quite a psychologically traumatizing experience for anyone. Now, what we are not clear on is what proportion of individuals does that explain the whole of their sleep disturbance? What proportion does it contribute to their sleep disturbance? And how much of the sleep disturbance that we're seeing in the post-COVID setting actually relates to physical damage to the autonomic nervous system? And I think that that's going to take some time to unravel. Now, because there are so many different contributions, there are lots of different avenues down which we can explore um, in terms of therapeutics, in terms of getting people better, but they don't work for everyone. So it's really on a case-by-case basis? I, I think so. I mean, there are a few things that can be done across the board. Given that sleep disturbance, uh, that insomnia is a very common condition, so chronic insomnia affects about one in 10 of the population anyway, about 30% of adults will have a degree of insomnia during any one year. So this is a very common problem. So we do have some standard therapies that can be applied to insomnia um, across the board, whether it's with or without COVID, whether it's thought to be purely psychological, purely behavioural or environmental, or 99% biological related to some sort of neurological dysfunction, there are some things that can be applied across the board. And the thing that really, I think, demonstrates itself to be most useful is a a form of treatment, um, which has now become the standard treatment for insomnia, which is called cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. Now, people usually balk at the Uh, mention of CBT because they think that that is a treatment for anxiety and depression. But it's really important to understand that, first of all, CBT for insomnia, strictly speaking, is not CBT. It borrows from the principles of CBT. But the way to really think of CBT for insomnia is a form of brain retraining, trying to re-establish the brain's normal associations between bed and sleep, to break down the negative associations between bed and sleep, so i.e. that you begin to associate bed with being in a slightly anxious state because you, you're lying there in dread of the night ahead or being unable to function with fatigue and sleepiness the following day and, and replacing it with, with good connotations. Um, and we know that actually across the board, and I'm not talking specifically about COVID, that CBTI, which is a very limited form of treatment that usually lasts between four and six weeks, helps about 60 to 80% of individuals without resorting to any medications. So so I think that that strikes me as a very obvious thing that everybody who is having sleep disturbance in the context that we're discussing should be trying. Would that be your first line of defence before any kind of drug intervention? Yes, I think so. Because, you know, if you've got an intervention that improves matters in 60 to 80 percent of individuals in the long term, Uh, Given that at the moment, we're not even sure how long sleep disturbance would last in the average individual in the post-COVID setting, 
it seems a very sensible place to start without resorting to any medication. And as I said, it is freely available. You, you know, it's not the highest quality CBTI that you can get, but there are digital platforms that are freely available to NHS patients if their GP refers them to that digital platform. Um, and it's a very good starting point. And indeed, the evidence suggests that these sorts of digital platforms are you know, pretty much as good as face-to-face CBTI. Could you give us a few examples of some of these platforms so people can ask their GP? So the two that, uh, and it depends on your CCG, that GPs are or have been able to refer to for free have been one called Sleep Station and one called Sleepio. I understand that sleep, you can, patterns are very important, but with the idea that there could be some damage to the nervous system, how then would retraining overcome damage? It's not going to overcome damage, but as I said, that you know there are contributions from multiple areas in most individuals. And so what you're doing is you're doing something very easy to do, something very easy to access to improve the sleep. So if you are one of those individuals in whom 100% of your sleep disturbance is related to some sort of neurological dysfunction, then it probably is not going to do much, except for it might help some of the things that you're perhaps doing during the day that might be also contributing to poor sleep. Um, so, so there are some individuals that this will not work for, but it's a very good place to start. I get this fright, uh, flight or fight response when I wake up in the morning. Yes. As I wake up, I feel absolutely anxious and like uh, something's going on, my heart's racing. And that's just on wake on uh, becoming awake, not when I fall asleep. That's a very common description. So people describe this exaggerated um, hyperarousal state on waking. So we know that actually when people wake up, their heart rate increases a little anyway, but there seems to be something very, very exaggerated in the post-COVID setting. Um, and, and what you say, I've heard many times before. We've had a lot of listeners saying um, that they, no matter how much they sleep, they don't feel rested. So yeah. what's going on then in the body if we're not if we're sleeping, but we're not we're not waking up refreshed? I, I think it's useful to use uh, another group of individuals as a as a template, a comparator. One of the things that has struck many, many physicians is the parallel between the post-COVID state and a condition called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I'm not sure. I'm sure you'll be familiar with this uh, entity. Yes. And um, in one of the things that we do see very, very frequently in POPs is that individuals say that no matter how much they sleep, they feel totally unrefreshed. Um, and when we when we look at their sleep, we see that their sleep is of poor quality, that they have or often have a higher number of arousals. And I'm using the term arousal in a slightly different way to that hyperarousal state that we were discussing earlier, in that when we track people's brainwaves overnight, um, what we see is little blips in their brainwaves, you know, throughout the night, several times an hour. And that's part of the normal physiological response. It's probably related to making sure that you're able to sample your environment even whilst you're sleeping. But what we see is a very heightened um, arousal rate. So that what, what we term the arousal index, which in most individuals is probably of the order of about you know, 5 to 15 per hour. 
in people with POPs is often significantly higher of the order of 30 to 40 arousals per hour. So there is something there that is contributing to um, disruption of sleep. Now that doesn't necessarily say it's biological because physiological causes can also cause this, but it's certainly an interesting finding. The other interesting finding in individuals with POPs is that frequently, although they complain of profound sleepiness, when we try and prove that objectively, we can't. Um, which suggests that a, a significant element of that unrefreshing nature of sleep is probably fatigue rather than sleepiness. And I think Hadi talked about fatigue in the last interview that you did, which is, you know, it's a very nebulous concept. There is something that about the thermostat within our brains that uh, is reset in POTS or in, in post-COVID, uh, and it's fatigue rather than sleepiness that contributes to that feeling of unrefreshing sleep. Can can we just talk about the relation between fatigue and sleep? The fatigue that you feel in your body that's possibly different to normal tiredness. And this, I mean, this happens to me, just what you've been saying. The night before last I slept for 12 hours, I still woke up feeling appalling. I thought there was a link between my lack of sleep and feeling awful, but I can still feel awful if I have had a lot of sleep. Yeah. Can sleep combat that feeling of fatigue, that feeling of heaviness? Can having a good night's sleep actually start to address some of those big issues of long COVID? I mean, that's a, that's a complex question. And unfortunately, the answer is rather complex too, in that... You know, there are some individuals who have pure sleep disorders who actually present predominantly with fatigue. And when we address their sleep disorder, their fatigue disappears. Um, but then again, if you look at individuals with chronic fatigue syndrome or once again POTS, you know, sometimes by improving their sleep, we make a massive difference to their fatigue. But in other situations, we can very clearly objectively improve their sleep and it makes no material difference to their fatigue at all. So it's clearly the case that their fatigue originates from somewhere else rather than their sleep. Do you want to just t tell us what happens to our bodies when we sleep? What is what is the process that our body is going? I don't I don't necessarily mean through the stages of sleep. I mean what happens on a cellular or molecular level to rejuvenate or um, restore our bodies? Well, I, I think the starting point is really that uh, although we have a master clock in our brains in an area of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is where our circadian rhythm is, is, is centered, all of our organs have their own circadian rhythms. And if you, uh, you can find a circadian clock in, in the liver, in the skin, in, in a whole range of tissues. And in fact, if you take a cell out of your body and you stick it in a Petri dish, you'll see that about 40% of genes within that cell experience a fluctuation in the way that they're expressed over a circadian, uh, over a 24 hour period. So that circadian rhythm is part and parcel of every cell in our bodies. And it defines a whole range of, of um, biochemical and metabolic processes that occur within our bodies. Some of that is related to the 24-hour clock, and some of it is, of course, related to sleep as well. So we know that sleep has a number of different functions, both from a metabolic perspective, so in terms of regulating how we utilise glucose, 
in terms of how we um, how our immune system functions. So if we disrupt sleep, then there is a significant impact on you know, our immune system. On, on a very basic level, if you take individuals into a cold laboratory, so I'm talking about the common cold, and you sleep deprive them to a certain extent, the more you sleep deprive them, the more likely they are to get the cold if you squirt the virus up their nose. Um, but we also know that, that sleep dis dysfunction, sleep disturbance is important for your inflammatory status. And this is, of course, an area of great interest when it comes to COVID, that when you sleep deprive individuals, what you see is fundamental changes is in some of the cytokines, some of the chemicals that are involved in immune regulation. And it may be that actually sleep is an important factor in not only influencing how likely you are to get COVID if, you, um, if you're uh, exposed to it, but it also may define your reaction to COVID uh, when you get it. And in fact, there have been numerous studies that have shown, for example, that obstructive sleep apnea, which is a condition that affects your breathing in sleep, seems to be associated with an increased risk of, uh, of serious COVID that is independent of some of the other medical conditions that um, COVID is associated with. So, so there's a great deal of interest about sleep and the immune system. There's a great deal of uh, interest about sleep in the brain in that one of the important functions of, of sleep is to um, regulate a, a variety of brain functions. So perhaps the, the area that is, uh, has got the most focus on it is this concept that actually within our brains, there is a system called the glymphatic system, which is a little bit like the lymphatic system in the rest of our bodies. And that one of the functions of the glymphatic system is to remove toxins and metabolites from the brain. Now, this glymphatic system opens up by about 60% in slow wave sleep in the very deepest stages of sleep. And so you can begin to understand why disrupted sleep or poor quality sleep might influence brain function directly. And indeed, one of the hot areas of research at the moment is surrounding the uh, association between poor quality sleep or sleep apnea or a range of other conditions like insomnia and Alzheimer's disease because one of the substances that is removed by the glymphatic system is a protein called beta amyloid which is implicated in the pathophysiology and the origins of Alzheimer's disease. Oh this is all terrible news for me because I've been a terrible sleeper all my life. <laughs> Honestly, even pre-COVID. Yeah I mean it's a, it, you know look it's a bit more complicated and and one of the issues for many people is that in the common literature, so there are a few books, as you know, out there about sleep. And one of the things that some of these books have done is in people's minds, it's conflated chronic sleep deprivation with insomnia. And chronic sleep deprivation and insomnia, are, obviously, there are some commonalities between the two, but they are two different physiological states. And so not everything that applies to chronic sleep deprivation applies to all individuals with insomnia. And so one has to be a little bit careful because what, what you don't want to do is you don't want to increase people's anxiety surrounding their health with regard to insomnia any more than uh, there already is, because of course that's going to worsen insomnia. Can different people have different amounts of uh, sleep? Like I've, all, I've only ever needed five or six hours max. You and I are both people who have always survived on very, very small amounts of sleep. Now you're still surviving on very small amounts of sleep. Possibly you need more. I am unable to function without 
a major upping of sleep now. Are people sometimes healthy just on five hours sleep? Yes. I, I mean, the first thing I want to pick you up on, Emily, is your term survive. Um, so obviously, we don't want you to survive on five or six hours sleep. We want I you always to felt fine. I, wait, I always okay. felt fine before. Okay. And now if I have five hours sleep, I am awful. Well, we, we can we can get on to that because there's a whole uh, amount of research and literature surrounding feeling fine and whether or not you actually are fine. Um, but to answer your, your specific question, we know that there is a, um, a range of sleep requirements in the population. And so, so typically the sleep duration of seven to eight and a half hours is sort of trotted out. And to the majority of the population, that's probably what they need. Um, but we know that there are outliers there. Our, our sleep requirement is to some extent defined by our genetics. There are genes that influence whether or not we have a longer or shorter sleep time, a sleep duration, sleep requirement. And in fact, those variants have been looked at in various populations, and it, that's quite a hard and fast finding. But it's also influenced, of course, by the quality of your sleep. So, you know, if you are one of those individuals who is a genetically short sleeper, and then something else comes along to disrupt your sleep, then of course, you're not going to be able to function on the same amount of sleep that you could function off before you got unwell, or that condition started disrupting your sleep. I mean, I naturally have always, since since I've been about 18, I know I only ever sleep four hours, five hours max in a row, and five hours for me would be amazing. But it really depends on the quality, because sometimes I can have two hours and feel amazing, and sometimes I can be asleep for five hours and feel dreadful. So, so one of the things that you have to be aware of is that there is a not necessarily a direct correlation between how you feel and how you're functioning. And in fact, we see this quite regularly that, you know, individuals can say, well, first of all, they can say, I'm not sleepy at all. You bring them into a sleep lab, they're asleep within 30 seconds every time you give them the opportunity. Um, so, so, so we are sometimes not very good judges of how sleepy we actually are. We're also not very good judges for many, many people uh, as to what the cognitive consequences of sleep deprivation are. So. I guess what I'm saying to you is that there are some individuals out there who can feel absolutely great off four or five hours sleep a night. But actually, if you were to formally test them for cognitive function or a range of other areas of performance, they would be performing woefully below what they should be performing. So the consequences on on their neurological, on their psychological health may not be immediately apparent to them. Well, I've definitely noticed I've just come back from the US, so I'm horribly sleep deprived because I've got jet lag because of the time difference. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed a real resurgence in my cardiac COVID symptoms. And I can I can directly link the two, which is interesting. Well, which is interesting, but it's not that surprising. So if you sleep deprive somebody, what you do is you increase their levels of circulating adrenaline and, and, and cortisol. Um, and so it's not that surprising that if you are sleep deprived, your sympathetic drive is going to be greater. And in fact, that's why, or at least one of the reasons why many individuals who have chronic insomnia with very short sleep time will use the term, I feel tired, but extremely wired. You know, you feel jittery. You feel like you've had, you know, you know, 100 cups of coffee, which you may have done, but hopefully not. Um, 
So, so it, you know, that tired but wired phenomenon, I think, is an illustration of the fact that actually sleep deprivation in itself, and, you know, when I talk about insomnia, there are some people with insomnia who actually, if you measure their sleep, don't sleep that much less than normal individuals. But there is a subgroup of individuals with insomnia who sleep very, very little. And, and when you are within that group, then it's entirely understandable why you should say that, you know, your heart is racing and your, all your autonomic symptoms are much worse. I've heard you say that before as well, that um, insomnia doesn't necessarily mean sleep deprivation. By that, do you mean that because people aren't getting a sort of long or what they feel is prolonged sleep, um, they are actually still getting enough sleep? despite feeling like they've got insomnia. Yes, I, I think I think the best illustration of that is there is a, a form of insomnia that we term paradoxical insomnia, um, or used to be called sleep state misperception, implying that individuals are unable to tell whether they're awake or asleep. So, you know, it's not at all uncommon for individuals to come into the sleep lab and say, you know, oh, I... I I didn't sleep at all last night. I must have got like, you know, three or four minutes sleep across the whole of the night. And when you actually look at their brainwaves, they've got seven and a half hours sleep, which is probably more than I got that night. And um, and, and that that's a, a fairly frequent finding. Now, we used to think that that was, you know, primarily psychological in origin, or perhaps, you know, people had very, very brief awakenings at one point at, say, you know, midnight and one point at five and their brain filled in the time in between uh, as being awake rather than being asleep. I think there is now some evidence to suggest that actually what in, in some of these individuals exists is the fact that there is an area of the brain that is responsible for awareness that perhaps isn't quite as deep asleep as the rest of the brain, which, which actually raises a really important point about sleep in that the brain doesn't necessarily achieve the same degree of sleep in the whole of the brain at the same time. And it, in fact, it's quite possible for parts of the brain to be in full wakefulness while other parts of the brain exist in very deep sleep. And that's the basis for conditions like sleepwalking, for example. So, so to, to consider sleep as being a global brain state, I think is incorrect. Fascinating. Dr. Glynn, a few, a few weeks ago, mentioned sleep as one of the main barriers to recovery. Mm. So could you walk us through a perfect sleep hygiene program? Like when should you stop eating? When should you stop drinking? What should you be doing? Should you be having a nice long bath with a candle and some music? <laughs> and somebody massaging your feet over here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so, so I think there is one important point to make before we go into sleep hygiene, which is the difference between a good sleeper and a bad sleeper is not whether or not they drink chamomile tea before they go to bed, or they have a, you know, a Gwyneth Paltrow candle next to their bed. These, these are not, these are not what are going to transform your sleep. And for people who have really, really awful sleep, um, who are very bad insomniacs, it is unlikely that simply addressing sleep hygiene is going to suddenly make their sleep much better. Uh, and, and one of the dangers uh, about this is that people get so fixated on the rules that they are given uh, when it comes to, to sleep hygiene, that if they don't follow those rules to the letter, then they start getting a little bit panicky and more anxious about their sleep. So, so there are obviously a few things that are important to consider. And 
Um, but are also important to understand that it may actually make no difference to you whatsoever. Caffeine is a very good illustration of that, in that there are there's a small proportion of the population who can carry a particular gene variants for whom caffeine makes no difference whatsoever when it comes to their sleep. So, so you know, the, these are not all hard and fast rules. But I can I can give you some basics. So the basics are you can obviously, you know, limit your caffeine intake and try and particularly if you're drinking a lot of caffeine, it can hang around for a lot longer than you think it does. So stop drinking any caffeinated drinks after about lunchtime. Oh, wow. Try not to eat very large carbohydrate-rich meals before bed because that can have two consequences. The first thing is that it can give you a reflux. The second thing is sometimes it can cause a bit of an overshoot of insulin secretion and can cause you to become a bit hypoglycemic at night. Obviously, if your bladder is waking you up, um, you know, avoid large amounts of fluid in the hour or two before bed. The, you know, really important things around light exposure. So we know that um, light exposure at night causes a suppression of the release of a hormone called melatonin in your brain. And melatonin is a chemical signal to your brain and to the rest of your body that it's time to go to sleep. And if you expose yourself to very bright light in the evenings, that can cause melatonin suppression. Now, in the short term, there remains some debate as to how that important is when it comes to insomnia. But what it can do, it, and I think that is less debatable, is that it can delay your, your sleep phase. So it can push your body clock back, making you want to go to bed later and wake up later. And when you talk about bright light, are you talking about screens? Are you talking also about lights in the room that you're in? Well, lights in the room perhaps less important, but actually, you know, having a gadget very close to your face at, at high brightness and contrast levels is perhaps not ideal. I, I, I think it's probably, in addition, a function of the fact that what we're doing on our gadgets is usually watching some exciting film or, um, you know, getting enormously irritated by Twitter. Um, and that, you know, that is going to, you know, not be particularly conducive to a good night's sleep. The other key thing is, and this is the basis of CBTI, is that for many people who have poor quality sleep, they associate their bed with activities other than sleep. They associate their bed with difficulty getting to sleep or being active or working or, you know, watching TV or um, surfing the internet. What we need to try and do is maintain our bedroom for sleeping and, and really nothing else. So, so that, you know, almost that you have a Pavlovian response to bed. And um, because essentially what we're doing is we're trying to recreate that uh, association a bit like you know the ringing bell for Pavlov's dogs and their association between the bell and, and food we're trying to turn everybody into a version of Pavlov's dogs where they see the bed they see their sleeping environment and they're overcome with sleep that's what is the ultimate aim for all of this so bizarrely I think I've managed to train my brain in a different way because I will only fall asleep if the tv's on and there's an episode of Miranda <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I sure, I'm sure. I'm sure Miranda Hart would be delighted to hear uh, that. I mean, but, I've seen. I must have seen the whole series about a million times. But I'll have to put that on, and that puts me to sleep. Ah, oh, but there's something, isn't there, about repetitive? Because I always used to listen to audiobooks, the same audiobooks over and over yeah. again. So, isn't yeah. it something to do with actually the fact that you know that? Well, I, I think there are two things. The first thing is it is a what, what, what we would term stimulus control. Essentially, you've trained your brain to associate a particular stimulus with a particular behaviour. Um, it's probably not the most helpful 
version of stimulus control because without Miranda, you can't go to sleep. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so it's not ideal. Um, I, I think the other the other thing is so so what a lot of people who have difficulty sleeping experience is that their brains are very active. I don't need to tell you that. I'm sure everybody who's had difficulty sleeping set, will know the experience of being unable to switch their minds off. And, and so uh, and what a lot of people with insomnia describe is they describe this phenomenon of sitting on the sofa in front of the TV and they will find themselves dozing off. And then they realize after they've been snoozing on the sofa for half an hour that they should go to bed, they go to bed and as soon as their head hits the pillow, they feel wide awake again. Um, because essentially what watching the television is doing is it's distracting you from the process of going off to sleep. And as soon as you're distracted from that process, um, you can go to sleep. And I think the key thing here is that the repetition element is, is important because uh, essentially you're not that interested because you know what's going to happen. So it's just enough to distract you from going off to sleep without distracting you so much that you want to know exactly what happens in that TV program or in that podcast. And, you know, there are many, there are, there are many kind of apps out there that have people reading very boring stories in very monotonous voices, which some people swear by. They say it's inordinately helpful, but this is just a version of, of you know, a distraction technique. So it's not necessarily the healthiest version. Well, I, I think it's not healthy only insofar as that, you know, look, on, on a very simplistic level, Noreen, when you go to the States and your your iPlayer is blocked and you can't watch Miranda, then you can't sleep. So here's another thing that I've found and since I've had COVID. I'm not a dreamer, mm. but since I developed this post-COVID syndrome or this post-viral illness, when I do sleep, I have the most incredibly vivid dreams. Yeah. So, so um, I think that uh, dream recollection is usually associated with when you're waking up from your dreams. So we all dream, you know, four or five times a night, typically, but we only, if we're reasonable sleepers, may remember one if we wake up from REM sleep. But actually in you, probably your the quality of your sleep is so disrupted and so fragmented that you're probably waking multiple times from REM sleep, which is why you have this perception of incredibly vivid dreams throughout the night. I'm not going to um, ask you to suggest medicines for people or sort of drug interventions for people, yeah. but for my insomnia, which was really bad, I am um, now taking various things, um, mm -hmm. partly because of my migraine as well. I, I've, I'm yes. on amitriptyline. Um, yeah. I'm also taking melatonin and um, yeah. magnesium, and I yeah. don't know if the H2 blocker is also supposed to be have some kind of sedative effect. Mm -hmm. um, so I take all the, these drugs at night, and uh, sometimes I still can't sleep. Yes. Without uh, necessarily a prescription, are there any supplements that really do enhance people's ability to sleep? Uh, so supplements, um, I, I and guess... Not, and not a whiskey, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> so many people say with alcohol, oh, I slept really well because I drank alcohol. Yes. And it is yes. proven, isn't it, that alcohol means you might feel like you were asleep, but it interrupts yes. your sleep massively. It does. It does. It disrupts your sleep. So, so I think that um, there are some proven therapies to, to help you sleep. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm not, a, I'm not against drugs. Uh, I think there are some drugs that really transform people's sleep in some cases. 
and I will regularly prescribe medications for individuals with, you know, post-COVID to try and help them sleep. But I think that they should definitely, the drugs themselves should definitely be second line. Um, and that there are things that I would generally, unless somebody's really an extremist, I think they should generally try the non-drug-based approach first. Um, in terms of supplements, well, you know, if, if you view melatonin as a supplement, and if you're in the States, then you would do. You know, melatonin is is a proven therapy for for sleep, and we use it very, very widely in sleep medicine for, you know, altering people's circadian rhythms, for um, people who act out their dreams, for sleepwalkers, um, and it is a proven treatment to try and overcome insomnia as well. Should it just be used short term to, to do that reset and then uh, remove it, or can it be used long term? Ideally, I mean, in the UK, its license is very restricted um, for reasons that are not entirely apparent to me. And I um, will often prescribe it outside its license. Um, there are many individuals who who I see who are on long term melatonin. Um, ideally, if you are an extremist and you need some medication, then the ultimate aim should always be to once your sleep has been reestablished and you've had a chance to try non-drug-based therapies to see if you can wean the drug off subsequently. Uh, and that should always be the aim. The aim should be to try and re-establish your sleep and not leave your long-term medication. That's not always possible. In terms of other supplements, well, there is some you know weak evidence for things like valerian, but it's always difficult to know whether or not that is as a result of the biological activity of things like valerian or whether it's the equivalent of Miranda for Noreen. That this is a that this is a stimulus control issue rather than anything else. So so, you know, some people do say that magnesium helps them sleep. Magnesium is is uh, anecdotally also rather helpful for conditions like restless leg syndrome, which I've seen a few times in post COVID. Um, and then you know, and then we're really getting to uh, supplements for which there is uh, much more limited evidence for. Yeah, is there any evidence for the CBD oil? Um, and CBD uh, supplements. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, there is there is some evidence for for CBD oil. The question is that the the CBD oil that is that you can be buy at uh, places like Holland and Barrett is probably very weak. It's certainly very weak compared to the the um, studies that have been done with um, with CBD and epilepsy. Um, so, as you know, there are some rare genetic forms of epilepsy for which CBD or, or a derivative of CBD is, is, is licensed. But the, you know, the order of magnitude difference in terms of the concentration between what is prescribed and what is available in the shops is huge. What do you think about cannabis for sleep? Um, so, Having just come from the States. Yeah, so, so I think in the, in the UK, we're a little bit behind uh, this because obviously we can't do any of the research and it's actually very difficult to access uh, cannabis uh, um, containing medications here. Uh, I, I think certainly anecdotally, you know, many of my patients have tried cannabis and it does help them. Um, and it also, interestingly, it probably also depends on the strain of cannabis that you're using. Yes. For some, some strains of cannabis seem to have a stimulating quality. There are two strains of cannabis, sativas and indicas. Mm. And uh, I was suggested to try the indica, which is apparently the one that helps you sleep. Yes, and that, that that's I've heard before from other patients. Okay. Can I can I recommend it? No, um, but <laughs> but 
but I think that um, it's a shame that we don't have access to these kinds of compounds in the UK. It would be great if we could have that actually researched, wouldn't it? It would, um, but you know the Home Office is not particularly keen on uh, granting licences in this kind of setting. I mean, there are some cannabis-containing compounds that are not controlled, and I think that there are some pharmaceutical companies who are trying to kick off these kinds of studies. We'll get there, I'm sure, eventually. I'd like to know, I mean, I don't know if we know this yet, but in the post-COVID or long-COVID cohort, is sleep disturbance part of the disease? I just feel like that the reasons that we don't sleep are so multiple yeah. that it could just be as it, as any other disease like ME or POTS that it's just one of those things that we're going to have to learn to to manage. Um, well, I think that um, so. So I guess there are two separate questions there. The the first is is it something that we're going to have to learn to manage? Yes, absolutely. It's one facet of this syndrome, and a syndrome is just a you know, a description of a collection of symptoms that seems to occur at high frequency. It is undoubtedly the fact that sleep is one aspect of the post-COVID syndrome and that we need to, to manage it because at the end of the day, even if it doesn't sort out all the other issues related to post-COVID, you know, there's no doubt about it. If you're sleeping poorly, you'll feel like crap. And, uh, you know, therefore it is worth investing in trying to get your sleep back on track. Whether or not that's always possible is a separate question. The second the second issue, which is, is this part of the biology of post-COVID? I, I think we just don't know yet. And I think it will perhaps become apparent over the next few years. Um, certainly, as I said right at the beginning, we are seeing that, that sleep disturbance is often, not invariably, but often associated with this excessive sympathetic response um, and, and so there are certainly some strong hints that there is a, a biological basis to all of this but I don't think that's proof that it's got an underlying biological basis because equally Emily you talked about PTSD you know we see that uh, people with PTSD have a, a marked sympathetic uh, overactivation so so in and of itself, just because there's a sort of physiological measure of all of this does not necessarily mean that it has an underlying biological mechanism, but it certainly um, is suggestive of that. <sighs> a lot we don't know. A lot. But, but I guess, you know, we are, you know, if you think about the history of medicine, it's taken hundreds of years to, to understand the basis of many conditions. And we've had about 18 months. months. In fact, not even, not even because we're talking about post-COVID. Yeah, so. it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know what was most interesting for me, which I had never heard before, is this thing about your brain's veins opening up and getting rid of the toxins. Yeah, that, uh, that is really interesting. So much of the things that he was talking about were new to me because I just thought sleep clinics were about patterns and then maybe some valium yeah i thought that was that was incredibly interesting that his first line was the cbti rather than going in there first with drug yeah to actually try and and the, and the figures that he gave for that were quite astonishing well i i'm gonna go away and and download from my bbc iplayer all the episodes of miranda so that when i do travel i'm not caught short <laughs> <I> can't <sleep. laughs> 
Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.